This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. We had a bit more of the theme than usual today. Uh, thank you to the doctors for finishing up a little bit early for us. That was great. We have a big show ahead and in the studio with me to help me out is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. It's been a, you know, it's an interesting show today. We've got stuff happening all over the place. And then there's the live performance in the performance space, um, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit later. The Triple R's hosting after our show, which is pretty cool. There's a lot of activity here at the station. On a Sunday, it's usually pretty quiet, but today there's people everywhere. I did see a lot of people around. That's quite nice. And it makes a nice contrast to the quite quiet situation we've got synoptically today. I know you guys have all been thinking about that, looking at the weather map. It was nothing. Oh my goodness. Beautiful, beautiful, quite unusual high pressure system sitting over us for the last few days. I don't know about you. Yesterday, oh my goodness, it was so glorious. Is that what excites you? Very calm. Well, (laughs) I think you know that it does, yeah. (laughs) I know it does. Now, we are lucky though, because on the phone, we have Amy Shura-Title, who is uh, based in America. Amy, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Hello. Excellent. Great. We're, our, our technology Yay, it's is working. it's working. You know, we we wanted to we wanted to get you back on because you've been on the show I think twice before. I remember the first time we ever had a yes. phone call, uh, we were talking about your first book and you were launching or, yes. or launching a rocket in Canada, as I recall. Is that right? Oh my God! No, that was in in Roswell in New Mexico. Oh, New Mexico. Rest. I forgot about that. Oh my god, that was the most ridiculous thing. We're like trying to get this rocket to go off for a documentary we were shooting, and we had this quick call with you, and I think I had to jump off the phone because suddenly the starter was working, yeah. and we had limited daylight to try to go, and we tried to shoot the thing, and then it didn't work, and the winds picked up. We didn't launch the rocket. Yeah, I, 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 I've been. I think I'd been yeah. doing radio for about twenty-five years, and it's the first time anyone had to go because they were about to launch a rocket, which was kind of <laughs> first time. I mean, reason to have to jump off the phone i would say but yeah unfortunately i still haven't ever seen a rocket launch even a seven foot tall rocket in the desert so i I thought that was just us australians who'd never seen a rocket launch but um Mm -hmm. given your field so we should give people a little bit of background you're you're uh you're a historian i guess you'd refer to yourself as yeah correct so tell us a bit about your background yeah so I, I'm a space flight historian. Um, so I, my, my academic training is in the history of science and technology and science technology studies. But at the core of it, I'm just a giant space nerd. So I like to, like you said, launching a rocket from Canada. I'm actually from Canada, and and you know, not everybody talks about NASA and the moon landing in Canada. So when I first read about it when I was a kid, I could not believe that this was a real thing, and I just had to know how and why it happened because it was insane. Um, so I sort of ended up self-specializing in spaceflight um, and have been doing professionally being a spaceflight historian, whatever that means, um, for almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in November. Yeah, and you've got a YouTube channel called Vintage Space, correct? Yeah, how, how yeah. Long, that's that is my been, YouTube channel. Yeah, that's been going for a while. How's that going? I think my first video was in 2014. So, it's, yeah, it's been a while. It's going well. It's uh, It's... The YouTube channel is quite sporadic, depending on what else I do. I always say, you know, I'm not, I'm not a YouTuber so much as an author and historian who YouTube. Yep. So it's been a little bit slow this year. I am working on a new book, and it's uh, coming out well in the soonish 
category. Um, right. So it's been, the YouTube channel's been a little bit slow as I kind of finish up uh, working on this massive project that I am so excited to share with people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's usually roughly weekly, bi-weekly videos about something you didn't know you wanted to know about space flight. Hmm. So, Amy, yeah, Dr. No, Linden no here. Is off limit, including bacon. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Linden here. It's lovely to, lovely to meet you over the phone. Amy, now, it sounds like yes, we've just well. got... I'm glad we're talking to you at the start of the hour because we've got a lot of questions to ask you and a lot of exciting things to share, particularly <laughs> in July, you know, 2019. Yeah. It's a very important month. Yeah. But space flight historian strikes me as something that isn't on a lot of people's business cards so before we get into that detail you know of your new book and what's happening in this month how many people go to the space flight historian conferences or you know poster sessions are there many of you around <laughs> i think there's like eight of us no. <laughs> um, <there's, laughs> and we're we're all friends by default um no i think there's it's it's very few people um there's kind of the you know the academic historians is one thing but they're very much in the academic world and then there's the the writers and the people that you know more familiar names people like andy chagan or J james hansen um you know, who are kind of at the space conferences as writers who are also historians. So, yeah, there's, there's like a very small community of people who are kind of in the, the writer, freelance, historian world. And we definitely all cross paths eventually because there really aren't many of us. <laughs> Amy, give us a bit of a, a rundown on your first book because we, we had you out here when, when it was launched. Yeah. And you are actually in the studio, which was fantastic. But yeah. And I remember reading, I, I'm a bit of a space nerd too, as some of our listeners will know. And I, I loved your book because it... it it went into a lot of history of spaceflight that I just was completely unaware of. And I wonder how many people out there right. sort of have that, have that knowledge of spaceflight kind of start with NASA and, and not go back yeah. before that. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and yeah, I was just, I should say that I remember before when I met you, before I came into the studio to do the show and you said, I don't give positive reviews unless I like the book. You didn't tell me until we were on the air that you liked the book. So, yeah, well, um, you know, I was, I was remembering today how nerve wracking a moment that was, but I'm so <laughs> glad you like it. <laughs> yeah, it was a great book. Um, no, the book <laughs> thank you. So the book is Breaking the Chains of Gravity. It is still available. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, the impetus is kind of dispelling this idea that people have, and it, it could be maybe more of an American idea because I am in the U.S. currently and, and see that perspective, that people have the idea of, you know, if we went to the moon in nine years, why aren't we on Mars yet? And it's this idea that NASA, like, popped into existence from a vacuum and just, like, magically managed to figure out how to go to the moon, mm. um, which is not the case at all, because it was actually 30 years of research and development going back to to Germany and to Russia and to the United States in the in the 1920s um, and 30s and really coming together in the 40s and the Second World War. So my book chronicles all of that and kind of the key players that really fed into what became NASA. So the idea is, looking at all of the pieces that became America's space agency so that you can get rid of this idea that it was just created one day and became something significant. It was really the, the pulling together of all these disparate parts to create something that was competent and managed well enough to get to the moon within nine years. Yeah, it, it was interesting. I, I remember some of these sort of very strong visuals you 
sort of talk through in that book around the early rocketry work and some of the ideas of some of the labs where rockets were just strapped to tables for testing and so forth and it just i mean when you when you go from that to literally putting human beings on another celestial body i mean it it seems like just an extraordinary rate of progress as you say even if it's over 40 years that's still an extraordinary rate of progress and it really was. I mean, it, it happened relatively quickly. And frankly, this is what happens when you have the wonderful benefit of military funding, because um, it's a ton of money. But it, it really did go from, you know, the 1920s, people blowing themselves up, trying to do these static engine tests on tables without really understanding the power of a rocket explosion and hence for killing themselves, um, to, to, to rockets with guidance systems to 10 years later, a rocket with a person on top. I mean, it happened really fast, but it happened so fast because there was so much money funneling into the development. And there was, you know, war is unfortunately the great driver of progress. And, and yeah. it's it's always the hardest thing to deal with that the, the V2 rocket that the, the German Nazi army developed became the basis of the American rockets. And that team developed the Saturn V. But when you have all the money in the in the country and you're in a state of war, you have everything at your disposal to make that technology happen in leaps and bounds, and that's what happened. Yeah. I, I mean, give us a bit of an insight into what's required for you to put this sort of material together, because it, it seems as though this is the sort of stuff that someone would have recorded. But I, I know, having spoken to you before, that's not what's happened. And in many cases, I, I, my suspicion is it's you, you know, going through almost dumpsters of old records and so forth in basements to pull out some of these details. I mean, how, how did you go about putting all the material together? Because it's, it's an incredibly dense book in terms of the amount of information, specificity of information that you've put in there. Yeah, it's funny. My my editor recently said that about my new book too. That it's very dense. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's a compliment. It is, it's, it's I think a, it's a compliment. <laughs> I I choose to take it as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I it is it is exactly like you said. A lot of sifting through records. I mean, luckily, and the reason it's so so wonderful to write about that era, um, a lot of it has been digitized and has been saved by either NASA, even if pre NASA stuff that can be saved by NASA, it can be saved by the military. If it's a U.S. Air Force or Army or a Navy program that somehow fed into an NASA program, and um, I don't really know how it works in Australia, but in the United States, you know, it's it's government money. So as a tax-paying American citizen, I have access to all of that. And not only is a lot of it digitized, so I can just do a very pointed Google search and find the the report that I'm looking for, but. I can email an archivist whose job it is to help me find the public record that I'm looking for. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's there's that element of it of kind of digging through things, but it's also the, the kind of more narrative storytelling element gets into, okay, you've, you know, as someone who, who's been enamored with this for the bulk of their lives, you see the storyline, you see the narrative, and, you know, every author ends up making a decision of this is the strain that needs to be in this book, this is the strain that needs to be here, and then you can kind of see, like, this is the story that's missing from the pop, like, the popular culture approach to science. So you do have the benefit of having historians who've done a lot of work before you, which is a fantastic thing to to have as an historian, and this is kind of the joy of it. So you can see what other people have done and then see where you 
you identify a hole that's missing, like a you know, like an like an old movie, and there's a scene missing, and you can yeah. kind of yeah. build around that and say like this is this is the story everyone has. You know, everyone knows the story that Werner von Braun coming to the United States as the former Nazi scientist. But do we? How much do we really know about what his life was like in Germany and what maybe propelled him towards the United States? So let's go down that rabbit hole and try to figure that out. So it's really kind of looking at what what do we know and where are the holes that have not been answered yet, and let's answer that. Mm. Now, Amy, we're we're in the month of July now. It's uh, the essentially the fiftieth anniversary of the moon landing, and in a sense, for the last yeah. six months, we've been you know subtly some of us sort of celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of of the Apollo missions that got to the moon. You know, even back yeah. to Apollo eight and, and so forth. The first um, orbit around the moon, and some some of those sort of yeah. all of which, when we you know, if we say to people, hey, you know. Uh, NASA only managed to orbit the moon six months ago, and now they're landing on it. Like it's it's such a rapid, a rapid pace that they set back in the sixties. What what are you going to be doing for the for this month? I mean, are you doing anything special for? Not a lot of sleeping, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, this is your this is your area. It is. This is the the weird thing is like when you get into when you stumble into the business of being a space flight slash Apollo historian, you know that you have this one month where the world really cares about what you do, and then you <laughs> go back to obscurity. Um, so no, I'm <laughs> I've been I've been writing a lot, um, doing a lot of kind of freelancing work with various outlets to explore different areas of the Apollo Eleven story because it it can be told through so many different lenses. There's so many different sides and elements to it. Um, which is really interesting and really fun to kind of explore through different means. The on, on the kind of more personal side, I've got a, a couple of videos going up on the YouTube channel. Again, admittedly slow right now, but I'm also doing my uh, Apollo 11 live tweet, which I did uh, five years ago for the 45th anniversary. But I'm bringing it back with more stuff because I have five years more. Uh, articles, videos, images, stuff that I've curated. So I'm going to be doing a completely to the minute, not quite the second, but to the minute, live uh, kind of revisit of the entire Apollo mission down to them discussing sports scores in the morning because it doesn't matter where a man is, he still cares about his baseball team. So <laughs> that's going to be good. <laughs> it's really it's funny how much they, they care about seemingly mundane things, but you realize that at the end of the day, they are kind of just doing a job and they're going home and they do care how the Houston Astros did that week in baseball. So, um, so that's going to be going on on my Twitter feed from about July 15th to the 24th. Um, it'll just be taken over, hopefully not by too many tweets because I know it annoys some people and it's an endless barrage but uh, it's really fun to dig into little those little moments my favorite is always when the astronauts see the moon for the first time on the far side and have those kind of unfiltered like wow that's the moon and you can kind of understand the humanity of the missions in a way that doesn't come across in a, an article that's, that's fascinating. I can't wait for that, Amy. So uh, I work in the climate science space, and there are a lot of climate scientists on Twitter as well. This is a bit of an aside question. I'm sorry, Dr. Shannon. It's, no, it's not about space. But <laughs> I couldn't help but think, you know, that sounds like an amazing journey to take people on online. Uh, when climate scientists yeah. are online and we tweet about our science, we generally, you know, get a fair few people who don't accept the science of what we do. Do you get a fair bit of that? Oh, the moon hoaxers are real. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, this is like, um, without fail, the, anytime I do a video on YouTube that's about, you know, proof we went to the moon and here's 
you know, we went through the Van Allen belt. It's just more views than anything I ever get and a lot of rage. Um, so that's fun. Because, <laughs> you know, what I, my, my approach to it is, like, if you rage watch my video and rage comment about how Michelle for the government, you rage gave me money through AdSense, so I don't care. <laughs> um, but there's, there's a few... <laughs> There's a huge amount of people that will will give the the pushback, and it's funny. I I've noticed there's few there's less of them recently, and I think it's because people who are kind of more you know armchair historians interested in Apollo but don't really engage with it are excited that it's all coming back out, and there's there's more of it in discussion right now. So their voices, I feel for the moment at least, are drowning out a lot of the hoaxers of celebrating 50 years of NASA lies or something. I actually haven't seen that as a headline, so that's good. Mm. <laughs> it's good to know. I'm still waiting for it. I know it's coming. <laughs> it's just not yeah. yet. There'll probably be another movie. It, it won't have Ryan Gosling, but it'll have, you know... I don't know, Pee Wee Herman or someone in it that'll be the, the, the fake version. Yeah. The, the, the redo of... Um, yeah, it'll the, be like... Yeah, yeah. Re, it'll be something akin to Capricorn 1 meets Apollo 11. It'll yeah. be such a hot bath. It'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, the re- remake of Capricorn 1 with modern-day special effects about yeah. how the special yeah. effects could be used back in the... What's <laughs> Capricorn 1? Well, it's a film oh about God. faking the... Yeah. Mo- oh, you've got oh. to get on board. Get on board, Oh, Lyndon. my goodness. Get I'm going to learn so much it's, this month, aren't I? It's an old film about them faking the moon landing, and then as I, it's been a while since I've seen it, Amy, but as I recall, it's, the astronauts escape and they get tracked down by the government or something. I can't remember. It's been a while. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's, it's faking a Mars landing. Mars landing, and that's the right. the funny yeah. thing is about it is that it's a Mars landing with a lunar module, which the lunar module would burn up on entry yeah. to Mars, so <laughs> let's just leave that aside. But the, the idea is it's faked when the government says, this is great, you guys are doing great faking this. But the problem is we realize that the technology doesn't line up with bringing you back, so we're going to have to, you guys don't, recover you guys don't make it home That's so right. you're gonna have to just leave you forever oh, so you have to fake die. and then to keep them silent they hunt them down and kill them yeah. and everyone's like oh capricorn one which by the way i think came out in 1979 yeah something um, like that <laughs> or at least late late 70s uh capricorn one looks so real therefore the moon landing is obviously fake like, okay, that's the most revisionist argument you could make, but okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, Capricorn 1 is, for the moon landings, what Jaws was for shark conservation. Oh, right. I suspect yeah. so. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty bad. A solid comparison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's a good comparison. Now, Amy, we're going to take a break for some music, but when we come back, I want to talk to you about okay. your new book and where that's going, because I think people yeah. will be pretty excited. I know it's not coming out till the end of the year, but I think the topic is, is fantastic, and um, hopefully you can sort of give us a bit about that as well. So hang in, good. hang in there, we'll play some music and we'll be back in All just right. a few minutes. Three, triple, Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Go-Go, folks, and we're back. And on the phone, we are still speaking to Amy Shearer, title from the United States. Amy, I'm hoping you're still there. I am still here. Hello. Awesome. Jeez, it's almost like communicating with a spacecraft. Um, we, it's funny, during the break there, I'm not sure if you could overhear us talking about you, but uh, we were just, Linda and I were just talking about, uh, you know, with, with that movie, um, Capricorn One, the, the whole uh, Mars stuff. I mean, are you, are you hopeful that we will be getting going to Mars relatively soon? Is that, uh, have you been thinking about that much? Because it's been on the cards for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, and I heard the president sort of made some comments about it. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's been in the cards 
for a while, forever, but without any real plan. I'm the thing is, I want to see a plan for Mars that kind of lays a foundation that is is a, a lasting foundation in space flight. Like let's let's build a space station from which we can launch interplanetary missions, be they human or robotic, that we can go long distances, that we can go short distances like the moon or Mars, because that's something that we can, you know, sink a ton of money into but have it last for 50 or 60 years as opposed Mm. to piecing together a mission akin to Apollo, which, as awesome as Apollo was, the architecture of that mission couldn't really do anything else, right? We just said the lunar module would burn up in Mars' atmosphere. We built a purpose, purpose uh, purpose-built spacecraft, the whole stack could only really do Apollo. So I don't really want to see a fast-track a Mars mission for the sake of a Mars mission. I'd love to see a Mars mission as part of a long-term foundation building something in space flight, which I think has been what we should have been doing all along. Mm. The space race kind of undercut that a little bit <laughs> and kind yep. of Force a quick solution to the problem, and um, yeah, it's just, it's been a challenge because spaceflight is extremely expensive, and you know, in, in the United States, every every administration brings its own ideas in, and you've got four or eight years to to build something that will last and hope that it can stay, and the next administration can come in and cancel it, and it's far more complicated than I just made it sound. <laughs> mm. um, you know, it, it's tough for someone to start a program and have it work. Yeah, and presumably, yeah, presumably, you're saying such a large, long-term, far-sighted yeah. proposal would also require international efforts as well. I mean, coming in and making your stamp on yeah. a national scale is is maybe different to thinking as a planet we need to make these steps. Do you think that is something that's possible based on your research? Cool. I mean, I would hope. I would hope that. Space brings out the best in humanity, and we make it a global expedition for the sake of this, the race and the species of humans and the exploration and betterment of mankind as opposed to one-upsmanship, which was what the moon landing was. Let's not lie to ourselves. Mm, yep, yep. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, really, I'd love to see it be a, a really wonderful international cooperation. The other thing, uh, like you said, is when you're beholden to a foreign nation or nation, you can't back out. So if, you know, President X commits America to doing this and there's international partners, when the next administration comes in, President Y can't just cancel it because you have an existing contract. I mean, that arrangement is what saved the International Space Station. Um, So, you know, going to Mars is not a a decade-long endeavor. We, from from what, and okay, I should preface this by reiterating, I do not work for NASA. I do not work for any space agency. I do not know the details of what's going on with the technical hard science, but from the people that I've spoken to recently, um, we don't we don't really know how to go to Mars. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a lot of research in terms of how humans will withstand the radiation, how humans will will work with the bone density loss and the muscle mass loss of, of deep space, um, the psychological factors of going to Mars. You know, you've got a seven minute light time delay. You can't have a convert. They talked all the time on the moon for the mm. sake of mm. keeping them from freaking out. You can't do that on Mars. Yeah. So what? What kind of personalities do you pick? What rocket? I mean, a a chemical rocket is potentially not the right way to go. We might need to develop nuclear propulsion. These things are decades in the making. And maybe Elon Musk has a magic solution. I don't know. It's a private company. Nothing is really known. Um, 
but yeah, I'd, I'd personally, I mean, I'd love to see it be a, an international endeavor of exploration, kind of akin to the the um, South Pole Research Station. Yeah, you know, the, the polar research stations, the the polar years, you know, all those kind of international science endeavors. I think are a fantastic model for what space flight could and should be. Yeah. Well, you know, Amy, the good but I know that's also wishful thinking. <laughs> it is, but the good news is actually next week on the show we're talking to one of the NASA, NASA engineers who's working on the Orion capsule for the return to the moon. So I'm going to put all of your thoughts oh, cool. to her and say, <laughs> listen, I know you've been working hard on this version, but my good buddy Amy Amy has a better way to go. So we'll see, you know, it, I, it might yeah. track well. we'll I'd see. be curious. I mean, I'd, I'd be so curious what people kind of on the inside know because it's, you know, unfortunately, when you're working for a contractor, I think Orion is the Boeing spacecraft, yeah. or is she with NASA? She's um, with NASA, but, but you know, yeah. It, it wouldn't, okay, okay. So it's you know, when you're working on a mission, you want to see your mission go, but it's it, it's that high, high level planning and policy that has to come into place. And I, I don't really know. I mean, in the current administration, I don't really know what is going on. Well, so, according um, according it's, to it's, uh, according to what I've read, by 2024, there'll be there'll be female feet on Mars. That's what I think. That's what he yeah. he said. Which uh, when I was communicating yeah. with this colleague at NASA, they were very surprised to hear that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> we yeah, will no. see. <laughs> apparently, apparently, there's just magic answers to things like keeping humans alive and also landing on Mars and also developing all of the rockets and spacecraft we need within because it's what a two year trip. So within three years, we're going to get yeah. that on the launch pad. Yeah, shouldn't be a problem. Now, Amy, before <laughs> uh, before we yeah, I, I, people forget that it's a two year trip. Sometimes I think that's one of the problems. Before we let yeah. you go, though, I wanted yeah. to talk to you a little bit about your your new book, which you've been working very hard on, yeah. um, which hopefully I yeah. think you mentioned is coming out at the end of the year. Can you give us some insights into what this will want, this will be about? Yeah, this one, I'm so excited about this one. And so it's, um, okay, it's called Fighting for Space. Um, I, and it is currently available for pre-order on Amazon. And the release date is currently set at January uh, 2020. And it is, um, so it's the story of the, the women Broadly speaking, the women who took the astronaut qualification test in the 1960s but never flew in space because it was America in the 1960s and that was not a good time for women to be challenging the male-dominant society. So this is, Shane, this might be a story that you've heard because you know space stuff. It's, they're, they're sometimes called the Mercury 13, quote-unquote. Yep. Yes. Okay. So it's it's really, what I, I, I became really interested in the story when I started researching it and there's this, this villain who kind of thwarts these young women. And I thought, this is strange, because I don't really, like, there's no no one is, like, a Disney villain. And she's always painted like a Disney villain. So I looked into this woman's life, and she's, like, the most badass woman you've ever heard of, slash never heard of, Jackie Cochran. So what I did was kind of dig into the story from from both perspectives of the, the woman who is the quote-unquote antagonist, but actually has so much more to do in the space of opening up aviation for women and also the women who took these qualification tests and what happened. Because it's, you know, you can look at it, it's really easy to look at it from a modern perspective, you know, 50 years later, actually more than 50 years later at this point, and see it as this kind of blatant systemic sexism, keeping women down and yada, yada, yada. But taking it into context, you start to see a very different story emerge because it was the 1960s and that's not now where women have the same kind of rights and, and freedoms. So what I tried to do really is make a very fun narrative um, 
looking into this story in a way that shows you that it's it's a much more complicated issue than just NASA didn't want women in space at the time. Mm. It's it's so much deeper than that. And I had so much I I have tens of thousands of papers potentially um, pertaining to all this stuff. It's been so much fun to research it. Yeah, uh, it's always been interesting to me with um, when when we speak about. NASA and and the use of women in space around that period because the the issue of how much mass you were launching into space was yeah. such a crucial one and you know to be fair most of these you know guys who were doing it were pretty big dudes and they were just too big yeah. I mean if you could if you could pull a bit of height off them and you know shave their feet down a bit and make them shorter and make them lighter you would have yeah. had a much better time of things and it was you know I get yeah. I get the time frame but it's a shame that didn't sort of see more women involved, uh, given the advantages that they have physically. Yeah, it's, it sort of gets into the, the question of what makes an astronaut. I mean, that's kind of a fundamental thing. And it's, you know, when you're dealing with an experimental program that no one knows is going to happen, no one knows if the rocket's going to blow up, who do you put on top of that? I and mean, who do you... You know, there's there's an interesting argument of you know if a, if John if okay if the Atlas rocket that launched John Glenn had had exploded on launch, it would be because space is really hard, and the technology is so new, and we're learning and we're trying. If the same thing happened with a female pilot on board, it could be fun in the sense of well, she did something wrong because yeah. that was the mentality of the 1960s. So it's it's this really interesting thing of how do you even how do you address this and how, you know, keeping it within the context, you know, I'm not, I, I don't want to get um, kind of, you know, anachronistic with my analysis at all, but it's, it's this interesting question of what, what does make the ideal astronaut in the early space age? And this is even pre-Apollo. This is the, this is the, the, the we're going to put you on a rocket and hope you don't die kind of space. Yeah. Right? Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, Mass is like you said, mass and, and uh, height are absolutely concerned. I, this is a joke I make for for anyone who doesn't know it. I was like, I'm four foot eleven, um, so very much shorter than the average astronaut at five foot ten. Um, but the astronauts at, at, in the Mercury program had to be under five foot eleven, otherwise capsule wouldn't close. So yeah, it makes sense to have a smaller, lighter woman on board who consumes less resources like oxygen and food. Yeah. Am I necessarily the the right mentality of someone to put into a test flight situation, or do you want a test pilot? You know, there's there's a huge amount of things to consider to try to figure out how to how to make the best bet. Because at the end of the day, it's it's not about what's right for America; it's what's right for America in showing up the Soviet Union at the, in the Cold War. So yep. it's, you know, yep. you have to take the international idea into consideration. It becomes a very very interesting study of of what was actually at the root of yeah. using astronauts. Oh, look, it, it sounds absolutely fascinating, Amy. I'm, I'm very excited that you you diving into this topic because it's one, as you say, I've, I've seen a little bit about it over the years, but um, not, yeah. not done well in terms of the context of the time and the geopolitical situation and what, what some of that would have meant in terms of choices on the ground yeah. that people were making. So, yeah. uh, coming out and in January... And that's exactly what I felt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have to say, I don't know about the release date in Australia yet. Um, so I know it is available on in, on Amazon, and I know that there is a problem getting Amazon.com to deliver in Australia. 
I will be in touch with you. Yep, we will, we will <laughs> work something know, out, I'm sure. Now, the yeah, title... Any, any, anyone who's here, I, I'm sorry, I yeah. can't verify the gate in Australia. No, that's all right. The, the, the title is absolutely fantastic. I mean, Fighting for Space, I think, is such a great title for this particular topic. So well done on choosing... I'm going to give you all the credit, even if your editor or someone else chose the title, but it sounds great. Cheers. No, that was that was a very... That was a weeks-long conversation with my, my publisher to get the title, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pleased that, you know, it's as true then as it is now of women still fighting for space and yep. conference rooms and on panels and it's it's you know there's a there's a, a very strong echo of that time still now um yeah. Yeah. so it's 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 important to me to make you know it's not overt but it's when you, if you read it, you're like, oh, yes, I still see these things happening. Yeah, it's yeah I'm, sure, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> Amy, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. No doubt we will chat again at some time in the future. Good luck with enjoying Absolutely. your your month of being popular and everyone <laughs> knowing about the topics that you do. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Know, you. You're seven, six days in, I suppose, for you, so uh, not only 24 to go, so make sure, you, um, make sure you live the high life while it's happening and hopefully, um, yep. hopefully some good will come out of that as well thanks so much for talking to us on triple r and and we will chat again soon cheers thank you so much you guys have a great day we will thanks amy all right that was amy shearer title from the u.s uh, a great historian if you haven't read her past book folks breaking chains of gravity I, i'm a space nerd so i by default loved it but I, i'm not a space nerd and i said it sounds I have really to great say, i i put books technical books like that down inside of a few pages if they're written in a boring way and i thought amy's book was fantastic i got through it quicker than most people know me i'm a slow reader but i got through that one really quick it's it's a it's a great book to have a look at so try and get that we're going to take a break for some important station announcements folks and we'll back in just a few moments. Three. Triple. There you are listening to Triple R, folks. Uh, we've been talking a lot of space so far in the show, so I thought I'd just change it up a little bit and talk about something else that I was very excited about, and people who know me or know what I look like will understand why. This is a, a little bit of news that came out about uh, hair regrowth using stem cell therapies. <laughs> I have been waiting for this baby for 15 Got that years. Got Google News Alert just ready to go, right? <laughs> look, it's, in- it's interesting because, first of all, I mean, just a little bit of context on why this is important. Um, if you just look at the United States, and I couldn't find these numbers for the whole world um, because they're, they're just hard to get but just for the United States there are 80 million people who have some sort of hair loss problem and you might think oh this is all old white guys but mm-hmm. actually this is this is not a true it, it is mainly men but hair loss also affects women and, and children at certain times um, there are some very specific hair loss conditions that people can de- that that are quite you know traumatic that can cause hair loss protractively throughout their lives. So this is this is quite a big problem. There are also a number of medical treatments, as we know, that that cause you know, varying types of hair loss. And the most common one people are aware of, I think, is chemotherapy treatment for cancer, where there is a rapid and usually complete loss of hair, often from the entire body. You, you think sometimes it's just the head, but actually if you if you look carefully, people lose hair from their arms, their eyebrows, their whole body. So it's quite, quite traumatic. Um, there are certain blood thin- thinners that can cause hair loss in certain individuals. There um, are high-dose vitamin treatments that can cause hair loss. So if you're a person who has to get a, a for example, 
high dose vitamin A treatment that can cause hair loss in some people. Certain birth control pills can t- can cause hair loss in some women. Mm-hmm. So not all. You know, these are sort of side effect type stuff, but yeah. but it's there and it's a problem. Um, anabolic steroids. Yeah, if yep. you happen to be. So inclined, these can cause all sorts of... Or if you're taking steroids for different things, like asthma or whatever, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many steroid treatments these days for various aspects of the immune system. Mm. Um, These can cause hair loss as well. And there's simpler things, you know, like stress, um, childbirth can Mm -hmm. lead to hair loss. Um, It can be, you know, in my case, hereditary. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And people sometimes have just poor nutrition can cause hair loss. Menopause can um, cause hair loss. So Mm. the, the range of things... Uh, that can cause hair loss is quite profound. There are a number of treatments for hair loss, you know, already on the market, and I can tell you, they don't work. <laughs> some of them, there's a few that sort of, for some people, have some effect. But what are we talking? Creams or tablets oh, I've or tried supplements? Lotions. I've tried. I mean, I mean, you can try lotions. You can try tablets. <laughs> you can try all sorts of stuff. Other people but, you've heard of, but done people that. I know, mm-hmm. like a friend of mine, mm-hmm. a friend of a friend, yeah. has tried some of these lotions mm-hmm. and they just don't work. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because um, when you think about it, uh, hair loss can give you some issues around things like being sun smart so being able to protect yourself and and also if you ever have any changes in color or complexion in the skin on the top of your head Mm. you need someone else to see that because that's not a part of your body that you're typically looking at Mm. so you don't notice those changes yourself so this can be quite problematic um, some of the treatments do depend on the problem. I mean, you know, in the case of things like chemotherapy and so forth, the hair does grow back generally after after the treatments stop. Um, but I started getting pretty excited about 15 years ago when I heard about stem cells. And I thought, you know, you can make these cells into any cell in the body effectively and train them to do a new job. This sounded really interesting. And then I waited and I waited and I waited. And nothing happened, Lyndon. No, there were no treatments. It was just... <laughs> absolutely disgraceful and your hat just kept getting bigger and, I bigger, know, and bigger. bigger and bigger and but recently a guy named alexi tershik from the uh sanford burnham press medical discovery institute in california has been working on some new techniques with regards to the use of stem cells and i mean one of the things to keep in mind is any real treatment any real solid treatment for for hair loss would be a billion dollar industry it would be huge because, as I say, you know, there are so many reasons for hair loss mm. um, that people legitimately want to get uh, resolved. I mean, I, I've given up on mine, but, you know, that people do legitimately have reasons to deal with this. And at the International Society for Stem Cell Research just recently, um, this this researcher and his team produced some results that were based on pluripotent stem cells so these are the ones that you know you can um, you don't need to get them from embryos you can get them from the body and you sort of force cells back into this particular state where they haven't chosen what they want to be and then you can say okay we're going to train them to be this sort of cell and what they do is they actually have been making these things into what's called dermal papilla cells and these are the cells, um, they're found inside the hair follicle and they regulate a whole other things. So these cells would regulate um, thickness, length and the growth cycle of, okay. of the hair. And it, you, you might think, okay, let's just grow a hair. But if you think of the way a hair grows, there's some really tricky parts of it. For example, our hair has to grow through our skin. Yeah. This is one of the things that you don't often think about this mm. it's not just growing on top of the skin like a you know daisies in a in a pot plant mm. it's it's got to grow through the skin so it's got to be strong enough and like able to actually do that like a mushroom <laughs> and this is non-trivial and this is one of the things that's been very hard to to sort out 
And they've managed to do this. They've managed to grow hair that looks natural, but also can grow through the skin. And Wait, it looks natural, but it's not natural like well, it, it is natural that's the thing so so there's been a range of um these attempts in over the years but often the hair comes out very thick or it doesn't it doesn't oh, look quite okay. you know, it doesn't look quite right yeah they've kind of over yeah, over engineered the bit pushing works, bit or that bit then, doesn't work yeah, exactly okay. so so this this looks good and it grows through the skin now so far the experiments have all been done on and here's a word i love to use on radio weekly nude mice um, and by nude, I mean no hair. Mm-hmm. So these are because all mice are effectively nude, I think, in the wild, you could say. Um, but they're covered in hair. Yes. They're not wearing clothing. Yes. But just to clarify, a nude mice is one that has no hair. And they're, they're specifically bred for this. So the genes that allow them to grow hair are removed. And they're bred to be nude. And they've been using these particular mice to test these stem cell therapies on. And they've been able to grow hair on these mice very effectively. So they've now even spun out a company called Stems and Therapeutics, which is, um, you know, a good indication to me that this stuff is leaving the lab and heading towards being a viable treatment for people with a variety of hair loss yeah, that is very exciting news. But how do they give any information about how it is administered? Well, I think this will be this will be a scenario where you'll need to most likely still insert these cells to where you want them to go. Oh, yeah. okay. So, so it's inserting. Yeah, but mm. but that's not that's not a huge issue. In fact, some of the, the hair loss treatments at the moment do a very similar thing with mm-hmm. essentially you know plugging in yeah. You know, hairs mm. um but if you imagine once you've done this then the hairs are growing and they're healthy and they're doing the job and mm. um, you're just cutting them as they get longer yeah then you know this could be a treatment that's much more manageable for people you know with hair loss problems for a variety of reasons so anyway it's pretty exciting stuff i think so and it's one of those things where we hear about stem cells a lot um we don't hear a lot about actual things on the ground and mm-hmm. there's a lot that are in train which is fantastic but you know some of the ocular stuff at the moment around the eye has been coming very interesting in terms of treatments that are available mm. but this is this is quite different this is at the other end and and it's important to note that it's not just sort of a cosmetic thing here this is this is something that the medical conditions for a variety of people involve this and that can be quite devastating yeah it can make Uh, a big difference well especially if you're you know a child or Mm. you're you're relatively young and the old the idea of losing your hair when you're old is not something that really plays out Mm. when you're when you're 15 so anyway it's very interesting work that's um yeah gaining some ground so i thought that was exciting now uh we have a few announcements to make first of all it's it's a big day here at triple r Yes. So as Dr. Shane said earlier today, the studio is buzzing today. So normally after us, we have the team from Eat It and then uh, the excellent show of Still Here, which showcases Indigenous songs and stories. But this week, for NADOC week, Still Here are having a special live broadcast, which is starting just after our show at midday here at the Triple R Studios. Uh, So it's in our live broadcast space and any subscribers are welcome to come along. We're particularly inviting any First Nation listeners are also very welcome to come along today and it's going to be a two-hour show uh, neil morris and dj paul gorry are going to present still here over two hours their theme of nadoc week i'm not sure if others have been celebrating this week but the theme is voice treaty and truth and so in the broadcast today they'll be discussing those topics and also live performances from alice sky key Ann, bumpy uh, jira jira and william elm so it should be a really great show and if anybody's in the area and a subscriber come on down show your subscriber card we'll see you in about 12 minutes 12 minutes and we've also got a giveaway folks if you are interested and this is all part of the month of uh, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landings but there's a great film called apollo 11 this is a film that was directed by 
uh, Todd Douglas Miller. And essentially what he's brought together is all this original footage and it's all been cleaned up and it's been made into a story of Apollo 11. And we have two double passes. Uh, The film is on on the 11th of July at 6.30 at Cinema Nova. If you'd like one of those double passes there, thanks to the Space Association, uh, our good friend Peter there has been happy to donate them, and Liv will take your call. So give us a call. You need to be a subscriber. Your name will be left at the door of the cinema. Um, so, yeah, that, that's um, uh, the phones are buzzing. I need to say no more. There we go. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in just a few moments. Three yeah we've got a couple of minutes to go Lyndon have you got some news for us yeah I just had an article that I came across this week and I thought oh geez that'd be interesting can't wait to tell Doc Shane about it on Sunday so I did a little bit of digging and before I knew it I was up to my neck in quite an aggressive science argument Oh, quite. What'd you do? Well, no, I wasn't. I wasn't doing the arguing. I was watching the arguing uh, about this idea that plants have consciousness. Oh, I saw. Did you see this piece that came out? It was a review article that came out this week in Trends of Plant Biology, which I think is one of the highest-ranking plant biology journals. Mm. And this paper was talking about this idea of plants having consciousness and feelings and sort of intentionality, intentionally making decisions. And this is an idea that has been around for actually a long time in various guises. But in 2006, a group of researchers coined the term plant neurobiology, right? This idea of plants having sort of mental capacity for one way or another i'm massively oversimplifying this it's quite a large area but this is is an argument that's been had and there were some researchers some researchers in australia as well actually one big study came out of uwa in perth talking about this plant that has leaves that kind of curl up when it's stressed or when it's touched or when it's dropped and they kind of kept dropping the leaves over time and then after a while they argued that the plant learnt that they weren't going to be damaged when they were dropped so they stopped curling Wow. Right? But it would still curl if you would shake the plant. Interesting. So their argument was, oh, the plant is learning. The plant, you know, has Mm. some kind of cognitive, well, not quite cognitive function, but this plant has an ability to learn. Mm. Uh, And there's lots of, plants can do lots and lots of amazing things. And the authors of this review article, this opinion piece that came out this week, aren't saying that plants aren't amazing. Plants are amazing. They're plant biologists. They love plants. But they are taking issue and have continued to take issue in this pretty much raging argument that's been going on for more than 10 years now about this idea that plants have in consciousness and saying oh look this is crazy this is not it's not very it's not good science is what they were saying essentially yeah. show me a neuron show Exa- me a neuron. exactly yeah, yeah. i mean and the plant neurobiologists aren't saying there's neurons but they are saying plants can do a lot of things so this particular paper here i just wanted to read this quote from it it says it's just continuing the argument right and there's a good article in the guardian about this tit for tat and just interesting for me to see the scientific process and these particular you know seven white males actually from the uk and the us taking this argument it's quite enough that plants are capable of converting sunlight carbon dioxide and water into the complex carbon components that support all of multicellular terrestrial life on earth we should not demand that they also be conscious of doing so. <laughs> it's just fascinating. It was a very aggressive, very interesting, aggressive. live scientific chat going on. That's a great mm. place for us to end the show. I think uh, <laughs> I'm going to go home and be nice to my plants. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. 
Thank you so much, Liv. Uh, Lyndon, great to see you and have you in the studio. You too. We'll Good to see you. you again soon. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We're going to run to a track now before the end of the show so that the live people just behind us in the studio here can have some fun. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Gogo, and we'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.